Hello and welcome to the Risk Map Podcast from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and across five episodes, I'll be speaking with our regional experts to find out how the top five risks we've identified for 2020 have been evolving and will continue to evolve in different regional contexts as the world navigates its way through the disruption, unrest, and economic shocks caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Middle East and North Africa, and I'm delighted to introduce our experts. First, I'd like to say hello and welcome to Sarana Parvulescu, a partner in the firm and the head of our political risk consultancy for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Sarana, hi. Hi, Charles. Good morning from Dubai, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I'd like to next introduce Sir William Patey, Control Risks Government and International Relations Advisor and a long-term British ambassador across the Middle East. Sir William, welcome. Hi, Chuck. Great to be here. Thank you. Graham Griffiths is Associate Director for Global Risk Analysis, and he's also based in toasty, warm Dubai. Graham, welcome. Thanks, Chuck. Nice to join you today. And finally, we have Sharif Elashmawi, an Associate Analyst who looks after the countries of North Africa. And Sharif is also part of the Dubai Dream Team. Welcome, Sharif. Thank you, Charles. Glad to be on this podcast. Thanks. Sarana, I'm going to take the first question to you and and go straight to one of the most important points that the top five in risk map is trying to make. And, And that is this discussion of the concept of leaders without strategy, the lack of global strategic coordination that we're seeing among national, regional, and indeed global leaders. Tell us a little bit about how this has played out in the Middle East. There's been a significant variation in responses within the Middle East. And some of that is due to constraints related to the underlying structural weaknesses. So you have a region which is very varied with respect to healthcare capacity, government capacity. We have countries in conflict such as Yemen and Syria and Libya. And inevitably, the response has been very different from one to the other. So In the worst cases, such as Iraq and Iran, we have seen governments start by denying the pandemic and then being reluctant to put in place too many restrictions because of the economic pain that they were likely to incur. By contrast, you have Gulf countries which have higher healthcare capacity, higher government capacity, which have tried to learn from countries elsewhere in the world and collaborate in some cases to understand how what the best practices are. They've put in place pretty strict lockdowns, and some of them seem to become, especially the UAE, for example, and Qatar, coming out of uh, the other end of the uh, curve. But still, even within the Gulf, we've seen this lack of coordination and variety in responses. And this, this picks up on some of the underlying geopolitical tones of foreign relations in, in the region, which has not really encouraged countries to come together to find a solution. The only exception would have been Saudi Arabia holding the presidency of the G20. Saudi Arabia has tried to bring some global coordination around the pandemic, but that hasn't gone far enough. Sarana, for companies with a global footprint that touches on the Middle East, or for companies with regional footprints across the Middle East, what does this mean in terms of operational risk or political risk? How does an international organization 
navigate this patchwork, not just regionally, but also globally? I mean, clearly, the most immediate impact that companies had to manage was the disruption triggered by the lockdowns. And we have seen a lot of that in play, given the, as I said, the variation in the types of lockdowns, the travel bans, and the difficulty of conducting operations, trade, and what have you. But I think the bigger question for organizations, I mean, they can eventually come up with a way to deal with the operational impacts, at least um, for the time being. The big question really will be the economic fallout of these lockdowns. And particularly in the Middle East, you have many economies which are dependent on sectors that have been significantly affected by the pandemic. On one hand, you have oil exporters or energy exporters who have seen oil prices plummet over the past few months. And on the other hand, you have particularly in the Gulf countries, economies predicated on tourism, logistics, transport, key hospitality sectors, which have been significantly affected by the lockdowns. So the big question currently on the mind of many organizations operating here is what will be the response to the economic downturn? How will we see these countries re- recover from this downturn? Sarana, thank you for that. So, William, we're going to go straight into big geopolitics. And the question to you is, as we approach the U.S. presidential elections in November, tell us a little bit about the implications for the Middle East and North Africa. There's been an absence of U.S. leadership, and that has led to a lot of idiosyncratic policies. We saw the withdrawal of troops from Syria in the fight against Daesh, and we've seen the withdrawal of troops from Iraq. That's not likely to change under Biden in his speech in March, April, on his big foreign policy speech. Bringing troops home from Middle East wars was part of his theme as well. And he said he wanted to narrowly define the US mission in the Middle East as as defeating al-Qaeda and ISIS. So I don't think there would be a big change. The days of big US military commitments in the Middle East, I think, are gone. So I think the Middle East countries are going to have to adjust to being on their own in many ways. And I think that's already happened in in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They're beginning to adjust their, their foreign policies to take account of the absence of leadership of the US. I think the US-China rivalry, which is being played out globally, would continue under a Biden administration. I think under Biden, there would be more pressure on Saudi Arabia to withdraw from Yemen. There might be more activity on seeking peace in Libya uh, and in Yemen. You might see a bit more activism than than you've currently got, because I think Biden would seek to rebuild the competence of the State Department in a way that Trump has hollowed it out. So I think you could see some some nuances, but the big picture one in which the days of US being the uh, policeman of the Middle East, that's not going to change one way or the other. So there is a new adjustment, whether it's Trump or Biden. Do you get a sense across the region that there is any sort of leaning towards a certain desired outcome in the November elections? Well, I mean, they should be afraid of a second term of Trump because That would be all in for Israel, probably the illegal annexation of the West Bank. You would find an Iran probably set on acquiring nuclear weapons. They would withdraw from the MPT. So even the limited number of inspections we've got now, you could see, likely see tension with Iran on the up. Um, That would worry Middle East governments. 
But equally, on the Biden front, they would worry about Biden's emphasis on not supporting authoritarian regimes and with a bigger emphasis on human rights. So there are pros and cons. I think they'll just, you know, as they can't influence it, they just have to take their chances. I think there are pluses with each of them and plenty minuses. So, William, thank you very much for your comments. I want to move on to Graham Griffiths now. And and Graham, what I'd like to address with you is the fact that really the Middle East is going through two shocks at the same time. There is the shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, but then there's also the catastrophic drop in oil prices that has impacted economies across the Middle East and North Africa. How is the region dealing with this double punch? You know, if we look back at the region's economic performance, even before the pandemic and the drop in oil prices, you know, it was already doing relatively poorly for an emerging market. Uh, growth was slow. You've seen years of underinvestment in infrastructure, education, healthcare infrastructure, persistent high unemployment, particularly among the youth. The region does have a very large youth population. And many countries have also been dependent on a few key sources of income, oil and gas, of course, but also tourism, transit fees from the Suez Canal, foreign aid. And so they've been dependent on a few key sources of income that have been particularly vulnerable to the pandemic. So it really has hit the region very hard, given that track record of relatively poor performance and high level of dependence on just a couple of sources of income. Another thing that's happening is that the Gulf countries have traditionally played a very significant role in providing support to other countries in the region. We already saw in the dip in oil prices that happened in 2014, 2015, that aid begin to be rolled back a little bit as the Gulf countries face pressure on their own finances. Um, and now, of course, they're under even more pressure. So I think, you know, that kind of traditional stabilizing mechanism, although it also, of course, had, you know, various negative political impacts, aid in the past couple of years has gotten caught up in the, the rift between Qatar and its other Gulf neighbors. But still, you had that kind of support mechanism available to many countries in the region. And it's going to be you know, much less the case going forward that the Gulf can afford to support its more vulnerable neighbors. So I think that takes away from the region's resilience and ability to bounce back from this you know, unprecedented shock. Uh, if we turn to the Gulf countries themselves, they're also facing new challenges so despite all the rhetoric we've heard over the past couple of years, the high profile uh, visions and plans, the Gulf countries have actually made relatively small progress on diversification. Their economies remain very dependent on an expatriate workforce that's now under considerable pressure because of the pandemic. You've seen big exoduses of, of expatriates from places like the UAE and calls for them to leave from places like Kuwait. So you know, the Gulf countries are facing having significant economic challenges with fewer resources to kind of fund those transitions that they were looking at prior to this crisis. So as we look forward, I think, you know, the region is really on the verge of a very difficult economic period. You already have an economic crisis in Lebanon, a budding one in Iraq, Iran under tremendous pressure because of U.S. sanctions now having that added to by the, the drop in oil prices. And you have other major countries in the region, Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, facing really substantial socioeconomic challenges and a huge drop in their ability to fund the policy responses needed to, to face those challenges and a drop in the outside support that they can rely on. And so I think this will have an impact on potentially on the, the political stability and level of social unrest in these countries. You've set up the perfect transition over to Sharif. Sharif, I want to throw two questions at you on topics that I know are very much on the minds of our clients, and that's protest and, and civil unrest and, and activism. 
And so, Sharif, first question, I mean, cast your mind across the region. Over the past year or so, the Middle East and North Africa has witnessed several significant instances of popular protest and, and civil unrest. Tell us a little bit about the scene right now. So as you mentioned, over the course of 2019, we saw the emergence of large-scale protest activity in countries like Algeria, Sudan, Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon, which really evoked the memory of the 2011 Arab uprisings. And even some, some observers have, have called them the second Arab uprising. And with the lockdown measures over COVID-19 and the restrictions on public gatherings imposed by the region's governments, there obviously was a significant drop in protest activity in these countries over the past few months. And the governments have really exploited this period of lockdown to increase their capacity and often crack down on the opposition to reduce the potential for these protest movements to re-emerge again once the lockdown is lifted. And the clearest example of this is perhaps Algeria, where the political establishment was constantly challenged by the bi-weekly demonstrations over the past year, calling for political reforms. And with the suspension of the protest activity in mid-March, it was perhaps a golden opportunity for the government of President Abdelmajid Tabun, who was elected very recently last December, to finally find some window to breathe and to move forward with its own political agenda which includes the passing of constitutional reforms, but also employ some repressive measures against uh, against the political dissent with the arrest of activists and censorship of dissident press publications. Just one, one small anecdote of this is a satirical French-speaking online newspaper in Algeria called El Manchar, a bit similar to The Onion and very, very popular among Algerians. Last month, the publication decided to close down, uh, citing the repressive climate in, in Algeria. So now with the gradual lifting of of lockdown restrictions across the region, but also because of the economic contraction caused by COVID-19, we are expecting most of these protest movements to return to the fore, but perhaps with more of a socioeconomic flavor than political one. And we've seen some of this already in Lebanon with some violent unrest in Beirut, with a bit of a sectarian flavor as well, but also in, in, in Tripoli, in northern Lebanon, and an increase in criminal activity in the country in, in the past couple of weeks. The same is expected in places like Iraq and Algeria as well, uh, where some elements of political instability and uncertainty are coinciding with the economic difficulties caused by the dual shock that Graham mentioned, which will fuel further protests. Sharif, I think it's the general accepted view that the pandemic has taken all of the issues that existed prior to the pandemic and has intensified them and accelerated them, and that it hasn't necessarily brought a whole new set of crises and issues and themes. Is that your view across the the Middle East and North Africa? Is it really the same sort of agenda of protest, but just more of it? Or has there been a real change in what you're seeing country to country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in one sense, it has absolutely exacerbated the existing trends of socioeconomic difficulties that the countries are are dealing with. One example of this is Algeria, which has been suffering already from economic and financial difficulties because of how the oil and gas sector, which is the main sector in the country, has been struggling in the past couple of years. And this dual crisis of the drop in oil prices, but also the COVID-19 related uh, restrictions have further exacerbated this socioeconomic crisis and 
prompted the government to take measures to reduce its spending and adopt regulatory reforms to stimulate the economic activity. But also, I'd say that the COVID-19 crisis has put more emphasis on the socioeconomic part of things. So staying on the Algeria example, the kind of unrest with the protest movement called the Hirok, since February 2019, the emphasis of that movement was on political issues and political reform. And what we're expecting now, of course, the, the, as we speak, the Hirok is suspended, but we expect it to return, but perhaps with a socioeconomic flavor and less of the political demands. And that has been a trend that was already there before the pandemic, whereby the political demands of the movement have been less pronounced because of how unresponsive the government has been. But also now with the economic difficulties that are affecting the larger public and reduction in government spending and its inability to create more jobs and stimulate the economy will put more emphasis on that socioeconomic component of the demands that we're seeing. And I think that theme can be generalized for the other countries across the region as well. Sharif, thank you very, very much for that. Sarana, final question to you, touching on one of the critical issues of our top five, and that's cyber. And, and so a two-part question, really, and, and that is looking at, the, at, at cyber across the Middle East and North Africa, you know, tell us a little bit about the threat and tell us a little bit about the mitigation. Cyber remains one of the top risks to business across the Middle East and, and has been so prior to COVID. But if anything, COVID has changed the priority, if you want, or the ranking of the top cyber risks. Prior to COVID, we had significant cyber threats to companies stemming from the geopolitical competition playing out in the region. We're looking at a region with relatively sophisticated cyber players among nation states, but also relatively vulnerable to cyber criminals uh, because of lower levels of educating employees and strict uh, network security and, and so on. And, and organizations have been trying to play catch up over the last few years in the region already. Now, with COVID coming along, that position of the top risk has been toppled to some extent by criminal cyber attacks encouraged by a work from home practices. Um, and again, for the Middle East, working from home was not really a regular occurrence for organizations here. And it's been a bit of learning by doing in the first couple of months of uh, the lockdowns. But largely speaking, cyber criminals have been able to target organizations through their usual tactics. So we're facing a double risk, essentially. We still have the underlying nation-state-driven um, cyber threats, uh, which are particularly aimed at critical infrastructure, um, international organizations working with state-owned companies across the Gulf, but also the additional threat uh, or the, the additional vulnerability of working from home, which brings with it new criminal cyber threats. It's interesting to see that trend slot right into what we're seeing in regions around the world, um, pretty much exactly as you've described the situation in the Middle East. What I'd like to do right now is, first of all, say thank you to everybody who has joined us. Sharif al thank you very much for the insights on social unrest. It's great to hear from you. Thanks, Chuck. Graham, thank you very, very much for jumping in on the economics, the oil prices, the structural and, and the acute crises that are happening in the region. Thanks for your comments. Thank you very much. Sir William, as ever, thank you for your observations on the big geopolitics. I have a feeling we'll be talking to you again very, very soon. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. And Sarana, keeping the whole show ticking over from Dubai, thank you very, very much for joining. Glad to be here, Charles. 
Thank you for tuning into this episode of the RiskMap Podcast. All five episodes in this series are available now wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can explore our entire RiskMap forecast at controlrisks.com. Be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, featuring clear business insight from a panel of our experts on a range of topics every other Monday, or The Supply Chain, a limited series looking at the impact of COVID-19 on supply chains featuring interviews with our clients, as well as analysis by our experts. To find all our podcasts, just search Control Risks wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to stay updated with the newest editions. You can follow all our analysis and find out how we're helping business build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you, and goodbye for now.